Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Pasha. My name is Ines Kosana. Thanks for joining us. We've all heard the term the Fourth Industrial Revolution, or 4IR. It was coined in 2016 by German economist Klaus Schwab and it's used to describe the technology revolution that the world is going through. There's growing criticism, particularly in the global south, of the framing of the fourth industrial revolution. Many are questioning whether it should be considered a revolution at all. Joining us today is Dr. Ruth Castel Branco of the Future of Workers Research Project at the Center for Inequality Studies based at the University of Verwaltersrand in South Africa. She's also joined by storyteller and political analyst Nanjala Nyambola. To start us off with, Ruth, can you please describe the fourth Industrial Revolution and where it came from? Well, historians within our research group at the Southern Center for Inequality Studies argue that the Fourth Industrial Revolution is really a, a marketing gimmick um, coined by Karl Schwab at the World Economic Forum to try to attract investment into the European manufacturing sector, particularly Germany, which was trying to kind of position itself as the, being at the forefront, let's say, of digital technological innovation. It, of course, is based on this idea of the first, second, and third industrial revolutions, which have to do with or associated with the development of capitalism. But critics argue that those, in some way, profoundly changed the organization of society. Absolutely, we are seeing many innovations in the digital technological space from cloud computing to others but the question is whether they constitute a fundamental reorganization of production and social relations or actually just an entrenchment of past forms of inequality whether these be along the lines of class race gender nationality geographic location and so on that was actually my next question could you expand on that how does it further drive this inequality well, I think, you know, this is still a question that's up for debate. Um, there's an assumption that the fourth industrial revolution is a sort of linear, predetermined process. And I think that what we at the Southern Center for Inequality Studies try to argue is that it, in fact, is a highly contentious and uneven process. And that opens up the space for us to shape what technological innovation can look like, what is developed, how it is developed, and for whom. Uber is a ride-hailing or taxi service run on a digital model through an app. Users request the car on their phone. It makes for an interesting case study. What we're seeing in the case of UberLeaks, UberLeaks points to the dangers of accepting a 4IR narrative uncritically. Um, these are files that were handed over, interestingly, by the lobbyists of Uber for East Africa. We don't have access to the files, but articles are now starting to be written. And what they point to is essentially what Uber drivers were already telling us, but they affirm the kinds of business strategies that Uber employed. And so the strategy that Uber has to continue to kind of expand and compete with other digital labor platforms is to enter new markets. And South Africa was actually one where they were able to make record profits in Johannesburg and Cape Town. And so they enticed workers in the context of high levels of unemployment with the dream of becoming a micro-entrepreneur, maybe even developing your own fleet of cars. 
um, the freedom, uh, but the formality of being on an app rather than in some sort of informal uh, uh, business and, and also of security. I mean, I think that these apps provide a level of respectability, formality and security that other kinds of informal work maybe don't. And yet, very quickly, drivers discovered that this was not um, all they had imagined. On the one hand, incentives began to deteriorate. Uber began to charge higher commissions and play with the algorithm in order to punish workers who refused trips at particular times or to particular places. You had a rating system. So all of this is what we call algorithmic management, which is actually very similar to past forms of scientific management um, of, of workforces. The difference being that Uber claimed that its employees were partners and not employees. And by doing so, it absolved itself of the responsibility for ensuring um, minimum levels of income, uh, social security, occupational health and safety, insurance, all of these uh, benefits that have been won over the history of worker struggle. And, and of course, we know that the conditions of work are one of the key drivers of inequality. Nanjala, I'd like to bring you in here. You wrote a book recently using Kenya as a case study where you explored how the digital age has impacted on Kenyan politics. Can you tell us more about it? I wrote a book about how technology and politics are connected in using Kenya as a case study, but really as an example of how we can always embrace uh, tech-first narratives and lose sight of the social and political implications of the technology that we deploy. There have been a lot of advances that have really deeply helped people. Um, the rise of mobile money has been incredibly helpful, for example, to uh, women, you know, uh, financial independence for small, most of the small and medium-sized enterprises in Kenya are run by women. And so it's been very good for them to be able to have this flexibility in a country where before the advent of mobile money, only 27% of the adult population had access to a bank account. Um, however, the other side of it is that it's also created an opportunity for exploitative pricing. Um, a lot of the loans, for example, that are available through mobile money would be usurious, would not actually be legal um, in a properly regulated market. And um, often people, when they present narratives about technology, it's um, either or, either has to be very good or it has to be very bad. And what I was doing with digital democracy, analog politics, was complicating that narrative and trying to tell a complete story so that we can have a complete understanding of the implications of technology. And Najala, while I'm speaking to you, so the Global South is quite critical of this fourth industrial revolution. Do you have any thoughts on that, on some of the, these critiques? I mean, as Ruth said, I think it's a very simplistic narrative. I think it's a narrative that advances a very distinct political agenda and it's a dehumanizing narrative. It's really interesting to me, for example, the companies that are held up as great examples of what technology can do economically. You, if you peel back the layers, there's always, well, is this actually unambiguously a good thing? So, you know, you have the big, we call them the fangs, uh, which is Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix and Google. When we investigate their practices, we, you know, you find that um, the failure to abide by regulations not only functions as this massive transfer of wealth 
you know, Jeff Bezos and uh, uh, Sergey Brin and all of these people are billionaires, but in a way that's exploitative, right? It's, it's a transfer of wealth, you know, during the pandemic, especially that, um, as Ruth said, you know, serves to intensify inequalities. The other countries, the platformization, the other companies like Uber and all of these other companies, uh, you know, have never made a profit. Uber has never turned a profit. Twitter has never turned a profit. Um, so what is it exactly that is being vaunted as an uh, example that countries in the global south should be emulating? Well, it is exploitation. It is the erosion of key labor protections, economic protections, social protections that had evolved for a specific reason. You know, there's a reason why taxi drivers had contracts and there's a reason why you know, gig workers of all kinds had contracts to protect them from the kind of exploitation that is now being sold as progress, as development. I think some of these narratives are being advanced by specific quotas to uh, achieve a specific uh, economic outcome at the expense of a lot of people in the global south. And, and thankfully, we're seeing a lot of this questioning. I think um, the other day, the contract workers who work in Facebook's content moderation uh, units here in Kenya sued the company because of the exploitative practices that the comp- they argue that the company is implementing in, in you know, their content moderation. And I think it's important to keep interrogating. It's important to keep pushing back because we have to create a, te- a technological context that doesn't just see people as labor units, but sees them as whole people who are embedded in social structures, who are embedded in political structures, and who must be protected in light of this. And Ruth, how do we make the fourth industrial revolution work for those who need it the most? Well, I think Manjala's pointing to a, a really interesting pattern that, that we're starting to see emerge, which is that workers involved in industries that have benefited um, for the so-called fourth industrial revolution are beginning to organize, right? So the, the case of Facebook contract workers in Kenya, the case of Uber drivers in South Africa, and, and what form that organization takes, I think, is still a question. Um, in some instances, we've seen hybrid organizations forming. Um, in other instances, we've seen unions actually forming and allying with the main federations. This is the case of Darapi workers in Colombia. In other instances, we've seen worker cooperatives beginning to emerge. But I do think that you know there's this old adage where capital flows, worker struggle follows. And, and I think we are beginning to see struggles of workers involved in these sectors in making demands. And the question is, what kinds of demands will those be? Certainly, one of the sort of narratives that, that a company like Uber or actually many digital labor platforms have tried to push is this idea that workers are partners and, and aspiring to this kind of entrepreneurial dream of autonomy and, and, and respectability and you can be your own boss and so on. And clearly, algorithmic management has actually shown to be a highly um, uh, workers work under high levels of scrutiny, right, and in terms of um, the ratings and gamification and penalization and lack of due process. So there is a growing push to extend the hard-fought labor and social protections that came throughout history to these 
precarious sectors. But what the demands will exactly be and what shape that will take is unclear. And evidently, um, states are being called to regulate both on labor and social protections, but also on questions of data and data security. Because obviously, and Angelus has said this many times, but you know, data is the new oil. So there's also a need to, to, to think about how is it that you protect data and not turn it simply into a source of additional profit. Angela, do you have any more closing thoughts? I think it's really important for us to have more African philosophers and ethicists and political scientists sort of engaging with this question. I think one of the challenges that we have is that so much of the digital ideas that are being deployed in African contexts are developed elsewhere and then sort of copy-pasted and grafted onto our lives through a process of this is how knowledge transfers work. You know, the people who offer to fund, for example, the African Union's digital unit will sort of shape what that unit does and what questions that unit is engaged with. You know, MasterCard's partnership with the um, Nigerian government, for example, to roll out their ID. I mean, this is not charitable. These are not charitable works. There's an interest there. There's a commercial interest you know, beyond sort of engaging as us as, you know, Ruth and Nanjala sort of in this immediate context, I think more broadly for the academic space, it's really important for us to push back against the loss of non-STEM spaces in our intellectual thought, because this is where these key questions of the ethics of digitalization, the politics of digitalization uh, are should be asked and should be answered in a way that is consistent with our specific contexts. Thank you very much, Nigella. Um, Ruth, final thoughts from your side? I understand the desire to be part of this 4IR, um, even if it started as a sort of marketing ploy in Davos. Uh, I think there is historically the first, second, and third revolution happened in the context in which much of the global south was under colonialism. And this sense that independent African countries can now leapfrog into higher levels of economic and social development, of course, that's desirable. Are we simply, as African countries, going to try to find whatever space we can in the global economy to insert ourselves? And, and will that continue then to reproduce the relations of extraction, expropriation, exploitation, exclusion that we've seen right, throughout the history of, of colonial capitalism? And I think we are still wrestling with the legacy of that and, and what our place is within the global world. The challenge is how to harness these digital innovations to improve the conditions of work and life and to make sense for the needs of people in the global south. At the same time, major companies must be held accountable when necessary. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Pasha, produced by Osea Patel. From me, Inas Kosana. Bye for now.